This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mass Mutual. The Financial Educators Council says 39% of Americans don't have someone to go to for financial advice, but you can plan for the short and long term with someone backed by 170 years of financial expertise at MassMutual.com. This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. A lot of people have been nervously joking in the past couple of years that it seems like the end times, with the pandemic, record-setting floods, hurricanes, tornadoes and fires, environmental crises, war, and fears that democracies are becoming more authoritarian. For those who take the New Testament's Book of Revelation literally, they may actually believe this is the end times. The end times have been prophesied dating back to at least the time of Jesus, who preached the end was near. The description of the end in Revelation reads like a horror film with fantastical, monstrous beasts and giant surreal insects, as well as plagues, wars, a lake of fire, and torture. That's what those who haven't accepted Jesus as the Messiah will face. Believers will rise to heaven to be with God. Revelation is the most controversial book in the New Testament. Many scholars think it shouldn't have been included in the Bible. My guest, Bart Ehrman, is one of the scholars who thinks Revelation presents a very disturbing and inconsistent vision of God. He explains why in his new book, Armageddon, what the Bible really says about the end. He writes that a literal reading of Revelation has created disastrous problems, including personal and psychological damage, and has, quote, affected our world in ways you might not expect involving carnage, U.S. foreign policy, and the welfare of our planet, unquote. As as many readers know, he was an evangelical Christian in college and believed the end was near. He studied at the evangelical Moody Bible Institute, but while attending Princeton Theological Seminary, he stopped believing in the literal truth of the Bible. Eventually, he became an agnostic, but he's continued his work as a Bible scholar. He's the author of many books, including the bestseller, Misquoting Jesus. He's a distinguished professor of religious studies at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Bart Ehrman, welcome back to Fresh Air. It is always a pleasure to talk with you. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's talk about the basic story of the apocalypse as told in the book of Revelation. Um, What brings on the apocalypse and the second coming of Jesus? So in in this book, uh, we have a a prophet named John who calls himself John, and he says he's on the island of Patmos off of uh, the west coast of Turkey. And he, he writes his book about various visions that he has had that he indicates are predictions of what, what is soon to take place, he says. It's going to happen very soon. Uh, he goes up. He's, he's transported up to heaven. And while when he's there, he sees uh, the vision of God. God himself is sitting on the throne, and in his hand is a scroll that is sealed with seven seals. Uh, this, this scroll is, appears to be holding the, the secrets to the future of earth. And uh, the thing about these seals is that nobody can break them. Uh, it turns out that there is one who can. It's a lamb who has been slain, a reference to Christ. What, what ends up happening is Christ receives the, receives the scroll from God, and he starts breaking the seals. There are seven seals. He breaks them, and every time he breaks one, a huge catastrophe hits the earth. Um, war, uh, starvation, uh, various kinds of calamities, you know, natural disasters. And when he breaks the seventh seal, we're introduced to seven angels 
who have seven trumpets. They blow their trumpets and every time they blow a trumpet, uh, disaster hits the earth. And when the seventh trumpet gets blown, we're introduced to seven angels who are carrying bowls of God's wrath. And each one pulls, pours out God's wrath on the earth. More disasters, one after the other. And so masses and masses of people are being slaughtered and uh, killed in natural disasters and so forth until the end, finally, uh, God intervenes and there's a big battle between uh, Christ and his, uh, his opponent on earth, a figure called the Beast, at the Battle of Armageddon. And uh, Christ slays the Beast and slays the armies and brings in a new kingdom on earth, a new Jerusalem that descends from heaven, a city made of gold with, uh, with gates of pearl, and the saints, the followers of Jesus, live there then forever. <laughs> so that, that, that's the book of Revelation in a nutshell. It really reads like the screenplay of like an action horror film. Uh, well, it, it does. And I, I think the thing is that most people understand where action horror films are going, but most people have real trouble figuring out Revelation. It's, um, it's really uh, – it's one of these books that people know about but almost nobody reads and the people who start reading it find it so confusing. It's so bizarre. They just give up. <laughs> they never, never get to the end with the exception of evangelical or fundamentalist Christians who use it to kind of mine for, uh, to, to, you know, for, for pieces of the puzzle that will explain what's going to happen in the future. You include in your book the passage from Revelation that describes the locusts, and it, it is very creepy and surreal. Do you want to just read that passage for us? So what happens in this account is that when the fifth angel blows his trumpet, uh, there are there are these beasts that come up out of the earth, locusts that have the authority of scorpions, and they're told uh, that they can torture people for five months, but uh, not kill them. And people will beg to die, but they're not allowed to die, and so they have to suffer uh, just incredible torture for five months without being killed. Uh, and then John goes on to describe them. Uh, in appearance, the locusts were like horses equipped for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had scales like iron breastplates, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails like scorpions with stingers, and in their tails is their power to harm people for five months. That is surreal and, and brutal. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm wondering, um, do you think if this was written today, that somebody would be sending John to a psychotherapist for a diagnosis and medication? And I don't mean to be flip about it, but this is the kind of paranoid detailed story that some people come up with who are really seriously troubled. And my, my apologies to people who, uh, you know, believe, you know, believe in, in, in the rapture and the second coming. I, I don't mean to take away from their belief, but I'm just saying today if somebody wrote that and took it seriously, they might be sent for psychiatric help. Um, yeah, I think that's probably right, or or at least the um, you know the police would be keep their eye on them for you know what kind of guns they're stockpiling. Um, but the um, I think the reality is that you know when we're we're in such a different culture now um, 
that it's hard for us to get our mind around people who are thinking like this. But John is not unusual in the ancient world. He would not have been thought of being anything like psychotic in antiquity because there were lots of other books like this being written that are, that are using high-level symbolism uh, and very uh, violent imagery to describe what's going to happen in the future. Um, and so he's actually participating in a fairly broad movement. And that's one of the reasons that, that most people don't understand the book of Revelation is because we don't have anything quite like this anymore. Apart from something like science fiction novels, there just isn't something like this. And, and in antiquity, it was a common genre among Jews and Christians. And so um, I'd be hesitant to, uh, to diagnose him uh, today. But if he, if he were writing this today, I'd be very bothered, yes. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you could argue that it was, it was bothersome back then too because of a lot of this imagery is really very, very uh, not, just, not just violent but sometimes gratuitously violent and, and attributing this kind of uh, horrible violence to God and to Christ. And I think a lot of people didn't like that in the ancient world either. So, so the people who are saved from all these horrors on earth are the ones who are believers and have accepted Jesus as the Messiah, um, right? Well, well, not no, not quite. <laughs> this is the thing. This is the, this is really one of the surprising things about this. Two two things that I'll say that are surprising about the book. One is that this view that there's going to be a rapture is not in the Book of Revelation. Um, this is something that um, it's a modern idea of the rapture. We can actually date it. It, 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 it was originated in the 1830s. <laughs> the idea that Jesus will come back, take his followers out, and then it's just the non-believers who are going to get, get all this. In fact, the Christians are still here on earth. And the second thing is that a lot of them uh, suffer very badly and in the end are thrown into the lake of fire. Uh, so believing in Jesus isn't going to be enough because for this author, you have to believe just like he himself, John, believes and practice your faith just like he practices it. And a lot of people in the churches, he tells us, people in the churches are going to be destroyed with all the pagans. This emphasis on, um, you know, pearly gates and a city of gold and um, in Christ himself is, is bejeweled in the image that John describes of him, uh, it seems very counter to the anti-materialistic Jesus of the New Testament. How do you reconcile that? Well, I don't. <laughs> I don't think you can reconcile it. A lot of people try to, uh, and people always have. I mean, the, the, the reality is that in the Gospels, as you say, when Jesus um, talks about wealth, he's against it. <laughs> he thinks that people should not live for material things. Um, and so he tells people, a rich man comes up to him and says, you know, what must I do, for, you know, for eternal life? And Jesus says, if you want to have treasure in heaven, sell everything you have and give to the poor. Uh, that's, and that's what Jesus did. He left everything to, uh, for his mission. His disciples left their homes and their families and their jobs, and Jesus praises them for it. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus embraces a gospel of, um, of spirituality that is anti-materialistic. And it's not the way people have interpreted it. People today interpret it as saying that Jesus thinks that if you give some away now, you'll have even more material wealth in heaven. You know, that, that, that treasures in heaven means you're going to have palaces and things. And 
That's not what he's talking about. The point is the material material things are not what you're supposed to live with or live for, and you won't have those in heaven. You'll have a spiritual existence in heaven. So that's Jesus' teaching. But when you that that you should give up material things and that wealth is not to be sought after. The book of Revelation has just the opposite view in some ways. Uh, the book of Revelation does have a problem with wealth. It has a problem because um, – the enemy of God in Revelation, this, the city and empire of Rome, is fantastically wealthy. It has exploited all the provinces of the empire. It has accumulated huge amounts of wealth. And so the problem in Revelation uh, with wealth is not that wealth itself is bad. The problem in Revelation is that the wrong people have it. The Romans have it. And, you know, we should have it. We're the, we're the Christians. And so what ends up happening is God takes the wealth from Rome, destroys the Roman world, destroys, takes away all their wealth, and the Christians then have a city of gold and, you know, gates of pearl and, and eternal life living in fantastic wealth. So uh, I don't think that's the gospel of Jesus at all. I think it's contrary to the gospel of Jesus. You used to be an evangelical during your teens and college years. Did you take the book of Revelation literally? Uh, well, yeah, I did. In fact, I, you know, when, when I was going off to school, I was 17, going off to Moody Bible Institute after high school. And I, I had, you know, I had read the whole New Testament, but I had avoided the book of Revelation because I just thought, man, this is too bizarre. I can't get a handle on it. But then I, I, uh, when I was going to Moody, I, I, I knew that there was going to be an entrance exam. <laughs> I thought, oh, my God, if they ask a question on Revelation, I haven't even read the thing. So I read it, and I couldn't make heads or tails of it. <laughs> it was so unusual. I didn't know what to say. But when I got to Moody, uh, everybody there had a pretty good handle on it because uh, there was a book that had been in circulation for a long time um, at that point, not a long time, a few years at that point, Hal Lindsey's book, uh, The Late Great Planet Earth. Um, many people don't know this, but uh, this book, uh, The Late Great Planet Earth, was the best-selling book uh, of nonfiction in the English language in the 1970s. <laughs> <laughs> apart from the Bible. And, uh, whew, really? Yeah. Um, and so this was a book that explained Revelation. And it explained, and the rest of the Bible, to show that it was predicting what was going to happen by the end of the 1980s. Uh, and what was going to happen, according to the Bible, was that Israel was going to take over the Temple Mount and was going to uh, destroy the Dome of the Rock and build the temple there. And this would, uh, this would create a, uh, in response, there'd be a, a coalition of Arab nations that would come together to attack Israel. And a 10-person European Commonwealth would then intervene in support of Israel. And then Russia, would, uh, the Soviet Union back then, the Soviet Union would get involved. And, uh, you know, then China would see its chance. And basically, there'd be hell breaking out of the Middle East. The nuclear bombs would start dropping. And, uh, then Christ would come at the last minute before we wiped ourselves off the face of the planet. This was all in the Bible. And, uh, you know, a lot of people treated this book, uh, The Late Great Planet Earth, as the 28th book of the Bible. It was just telling the truth. And that's what I thought. I thought Jesus is coming back before the end of the 1980s, and this is all going to happen. Uh, so uh, was the addition of, like, nuclear weapons as part of the scenario, like uh, one of Hal Lindsey's innovations, so to speak— in his books? I would say it wasn't an innovation of his, but he's the one who really pushed it. The deal is, is that, um, as I, I, I try to explain in my book, that throughout most of Christian history, 
to the surprise of readers today, throughout most of Christian history, people did not read Revelation as a prediction of what's going to happen in our future. Uh, since the 4th, 5th centuries, almost everybody read it as uh, an indication of what was already going on now in symbolic language. Um, but in the uh, – it, <laughs> it ended up changing, strangely, with the French Revolution. Uh, when the French Revolution hit, the reign of terror was just so incredibly violent that British theologians started thinking that this was a fulfillment of scripture. And they started talking about revelation as a prediction of what was happening in their day with the signs now being fulfilled about the end. And after that point, um, there were evangelical Christians who thought that revelation is predicting our future. That all took a serious change in uh, 1945. Uh, because the atomic bombs dropped, um, showed people that, in fact, we really might uh, put an end to all this. And so uh, that's when nuclear weapons started getting into the picture. And after 1945, almost all of the scenarios that get painted by all the prophecy writers who are still publishing all these books almost always are focused on uh, nuclear exchange as, as being at, coming at the end. So Lindsay, Lindsay built this up and came up with this scenario that everybody bought for a while, but, um, but he didn't invent the idea of the nuclear bombs being the thing. Can you name some political leaders in America who not only believed in the book of Revelation, but who took Hal Lindsay's interpretation at face value? Well, apparently Ron, Ronald Reagan did. <laughs> uh, he apparently actually consulted with Lindsay on occasion and he and, and Caspar Weinberger, the de secretary of defense, um, apparently thought that uh, you know this is being predicted, that the, the nuclear bombs are going to fly. Uh, and you know, I'm not saying that they were like trying to hasten it but it's not a very comforting thought. If uh, the commander in chief really thinks it, it has to happen, <laughs> you'd prefer somebody to think you know we you know we, it's not going to happen. But um, so anyway, yeah, Reagan apparently did, and Casper uh, Weinberger and other people, uh, especially I'll tell you, I mean the one everybody does know about is James Watt, who was appointed by Reagan to be the Secretary of the Interior, uh, who famously during uh, one of his um, um, confirmation hearings. Uh, was asked whether he believed that uh, we needed to preserve uh, our natural resources for future generations. You know, he's he's responsible for preserving our national resources uh, as the Secretary of Interior, and he replied that yes, it is important uh, for uh, to us to preserve our resources for future generations. But then he said, but I'm not sure how many future generations there are before Jesus comes back. And oh man. Did that, did that cause some consternation? That, that's not your typical Washington speak, you know, because if, if you think – even if you don't think he's coming back on Thursday, you know, if you think he's coming back in about 40 years, why, why preserve your resources? You know, why, I mean, why skimp? Why not just go for it? Because in 40 years, it's not going to matter anymore. And as it turns out, in 2010, there was a survey of Christians in America and 47 percent uh, thought that Jesus either certainly or was likely to come back in 40 years. Uh, I mean almost half of the Christians in America. And so if you've got Christians in America who say you know, half of them don't think you know, we're going to be around after 40 years, that certainly changes your attitude toward environmental concerns and climate change and you know, who cares? <laughs> it doesn't matter. 
Especially if you believe that you're one of the people who are going to be raptured. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, if you're going to be taken out of the world, uh, that's not a problem. But even if you are, aren't taken out of the world, it'll just be seven more years before, you know, before the whole thing collapses. So it's 47 years. <laughs> okay, well, let me reintroduce you again. My guest is Bible scholar Bart Ehrman, author of the new book, Armageddon, What the Bible Really Says About the End. We'll be right back after a short break. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Be My Guest with Ina Garten, a podcast from Food Network. Intimate and captivating conversations with new and old friends. Jennifer Garner, Frank Bruni, Emily Mortimer, and more. Listen to Be My Guest wherever you get your podcasts. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Carvana. With thousands of options under $20,000, plus customizable financing terms and down payments as low as $0 down, it's easy to find a car that fits your lifestyle. Visit Carvana.com or download the app today. Terms and conditions may apply. On Wildcard, the new podcast from NPR, you'll hear people like comedian Jenny Slate reflect on their lives. What is something you think about very differently today than you did 10 years ago? Dressing. Like, not salad dressing. I've always loved it and I'll never stop. Dressing my body. That's all part of the new game show, Wildcard, only from NPR. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This is Fresh Air. I'm Anne-Marie Baldonado. On the most recent Fresh Air Plus bonus episode, we looked back at the art of drag through interviews from Fresh Air's archive. Atlanta was like Mecca for drag. It had the traditional drag queens who were female impersonators. But, you know, I had come from the punk rock side of the tracks and we did drag as a social commentary. It was a re- reaction to the Reagan 80s. John wanted a very large um, woman because, as you had said before, he wanted the exact opposite of what normally would be beautiful. Uh, he wanted, to, as I've been called, inflated Jane Mansfield. <laughs> um, uh, so um, that's, that's what he got. As anti-drag legislation sprouts throughout American state legislatures, we thought it would be worthwhile to hear icons like RuPaul, Divine, and more talk about what drag has meant to them personally. You know, it's really funny. I feel like I should ask you for tips about how to walk in high heels. I've I never been you. able to wear heels. Really? It's so simple, <laughs> not, not that I'm dying to wear them or anything, yeah, but yeah, my feet ache simple. and I figure it's not worth it. So you, you want to give me some tips? Oh, I, I could run the decathlon in it. I, I, I could, you know, talk about drag racing. I mean, I could uh, really, I walk better in heels, I think, than, than in flats. If you're a Fresh Air Plus listener, you already get all of our episodes without sponsored messages. And now you get exclusive bonus episodes like this, too, every few weeks. Regular Fresh Air remains the same and free, but with Plus, you get even more of Fresh Air. You can sign up for Fresh Air Plus and support public media at plus.npr.org. Let's get back to my interview with Bible scholar Bart Ehrman, author of the new book Armageddon, What the Bible Really Says About the End. His book interprets the book of Revelation from a historical perspective and writes about what he finds very disturbing about the image of God in the book and how inconsistent it is with the gospel's stories about Jesus. He thinks Revelation's depiction of the end times and the wars, plagues, beasts, locusts, and conflagrations that will torment those who have not accepted Jesus as their Messiah has created 
disastrous problems, including personal and psychological consequences. Ehrman is a former evangelical. He's a distinguished professor of religious studies at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and is the author of several best-selling books, including Misquoting Jesus and How Jesus Became God. Let's talk about the role of Israel in the narrative of the end times as described in the book of Revelation. What has to happen in Israel before the end times are set up and Jesus returns? One of the issues I deal with in my book um, is the historical question of why it is that American evangelicals are so uh, supportive of the, of the state of Israel. Um, and I trace, I trace the history of it because it completely relates to Christian understandings, evangelical understandings of what's going to happen at the end of time. Uh, and so people don't realize this because they think, well, of course, there are all sorts of reasons to support Israel. We have the issue of uh, you know, wanting a supporter in the Mideast. You know, they've got to protect oil issue. You know, there are issues about oil. There's issues about you know, stability. And, and all of that's right. But American evangelicals are disproportionately in support of Israel, and the reason has to do with the Bible. It's because uh, evangelicals have long read biblical prophecies as indicating that Israel has to be established and strong before Jesus can return. Israel was destroyed in the second century uh, CE, uh, and it hadn't been a nation. And so Christian Zionism, the idea that, that Christians saying that Israel has to become a state again, that actually started before there was, you know, the Zionism we're all familiar with at the end of the 19th century and early 20th century. Uh, and the Christian Zionists absolutely supported Jewish Zionists because they, they believed that the prophecy had to be fulfilled. Later, after 1948, which, which Christians continued to take, evangelical Christians continued to see 1948, the establishment of, of Israel, as a fulfillment of prophecy. But there's one more thing that has to happen. According, in a kind of obscure reference in the New Testament, it's in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, um, the author claims to be Paul, says that, uh, that Jesus cannot return right away, but there's some things that have to happen first before he returns. The main thing that has to happen is that there's a figure named the lawless one. He's not called the Antichrist, but people identify him as the Antichrist. The lawless one must go into the temple and he will declare himself God. And after that happens, then Jesus can return. The problem is, that, uh, of course, there is no temple. There hasn't been a temple since the year 70 of the Common Era. Uh, and on the Temple Mount today in Jerusalem, the, the side of the temple, <laughs> that's where the Dome of the Rock is. Which is a Muslim, uh, a Muslim mosque. There are Islamic sacred sites on the, on the Temple Mount. And so for Israel to take over the Temple Mount means they've got to wipe out these Islamic holy sites. And that means that, you know, Israel has become very strong. Evangelicals think that God promised all of the land of Israel to Israel, and so the Palestinian territories need to be taken over. Jerusalem has to be controlled by Israel uh, completely. The Temple Mount has to be taken over. They have to destroy the Dome of the Rock and build the Jewish temple there so the Antichrist can go into it and Jesus can come back. <laughs> and so... All of this is just this – is, this is historically why uh, American evangelicals for the entire 20th century, but especially 
uh, starting in the 1970s in a big way with the moral majority, the Christian moral majority with Jerry Falwell and company. That's why they've always been supportive of Israel. Uh, and it's why in the – especially in the 1980s, Israeli politicians realized, you know, there are a lot more American evangelicals than there are American Jews and that's who we need to go go for. And so starting with Menachem Begin, but especially, I mean, Netanyahu in the 1980s was going to um, uh, evangelical prayer breakfasts and making common cause with evangelicals saying, you know, we are fulfilling scripture now, you know, we're all on the same page, you need to support us. And so the, the support of Israel among evangelicals is driven by a, a, this eschatological concern that the temple has to be rebuilt or Jesus can't return. So one of the things that uh, Trump did when he was president back in 2018 was move the U.S. embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. And one of the people who not only spoke at the ceremony for the opening of the uh, embassy in Jerusalem, he actually gave the benediction, was Pastor John Hagee, who is the founder of Christians United for Israel, which is the kind of Christian evangelical pro-Israel group for all the reasons that you just mentioned. It's really all about the apocalypse and the second coming. So what does it say to you that Trump moved the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem? Was that because of lobbying from Christian Zionists like the group Christians United for Israel, KUFI? Uh, Trump, of course, um, very, very much wanted evangelical support. Uh, and so many of his policies, of course, are directed toward getting the evangelical vote. Um, his opposition to abortion is the most famous one, but also his support of Israel. And he wanted to he, – he wanted – very much wanted to show the evangelicals that he was on their side. And the evangelicals want uh, Jerusalem to be the capital. Uh, it was the capital in the Old Testament. It's the place that deserves to be the capital. It is the place where uh, America should focus its interest. And so, of course, the uh, embassy should be in Jerusalem. So John Hagee, I mean, this this fellow who did the the benediction, he's a very um, um, he's a very strong supporter of Israel. He's written books uh, uh, supporting Israel. Uh, he's a very strong Christian Zionist, but he's one of these ironies that he he believes in American. He believes. Absolutely, that Israel has to be supported, and he believes absolutely that Jews are going to hell. So we've been talking about John Hagee, the Christian Zionist who founded KUFI, the acronym for Christians United for Israel. I interviewed him in 2006, and among the things he told me was that Hurricane Katrina was God's judgment on the city of New Orleans because, quote, there was going to be a homosexual parade on the Monday that the Katrina came, and the promise of that parade was that it was going to reach a level of sexuality never demonstrated before in any other gay pride parades. So Katrina was God's retribution because of this planned gay pride parade. So that's one of the things he believed. And I want to play an excerpt of his audio tape of sermons called Jerusalem Countdown to Crisis. In two minutes, let me tell you where we're going from here. This prophetic portrait paints the following sequence of event for the future. America and Europe become weakened and cannot respond to Israel in the time that Russia and the Arab invasion begins against Israel. This is God's plan. Why? Because he wants the Jewish people in Israel and around the world to know that he, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saved them, not America. 
Secondly, Russia with Arab allies will plot and plan Israel's destruction. That's happening right now. It has been happening for 10 years. Iran's nuclear weapons have been produced with Russian scientists. The Islamic Arabs are using the roadmap to peace to get all of the land of Israel they can get. And when Israel finally says, enough, you're going to see the beginning of the implementation of Ezekiel's war in 38-39. The critical point is the church is raptured before this war begins. I am telling you that makes this message one of the most thrilling prophetic messages you've ever heard in your life. You could get raptured out of this building before I get through finished preaching. We are that close to the coming of the Son of Man. Among the things I want to point out in, in that is that he's talking about this like horrible war in Israel and nuclear weapons. And he's saying, this is the most thrilling prophetic message you've ever heard in your life. Sure, it's thrilling for the people he imagines, including himself, because I'm sure he expects to get raptured. But, you know, how can you call thrilling anything that involves nuclear weapons and war? Well... Right. I mean, and, you know, that's, that's right. And, you know, he also, <laughs> he also uh, at one point indicated that um, the reason uh, for the Holocaust is that it was God's plan. Uh, God planned the Holocaust because that would uh, facilitate the establishment of Israel as a state. Uh, and so that's, that's why six million Jews got slaughtered, is uh, so, that, so that Israel could uh, be founded again in 1948, because that would fulfill prophecy. And if that fulfills prophecy, then, you know, it's coming soon, and we can be just rejoice, because we're going to be taken out of here. I mean, it's really, it's pretty disgusting. Late, late after that, somebody pointed out that uh, maybe that wasn't <laughs> a good move to talk about God's plan for the Holocaust. Uh, but, uh, you know, it didn't, didn't even occur to him at the time, apparently. Let's take another short break here. If you're just joining us, my guest is Bible scholar Bart Ehrman, author of the new book, Armageddon, What the Bible Really Says About the End. We'll be right back. This is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mattress Firm. How do you sleep at night? No matter what might be keeping you up, Mattress Firm can help anyone sleep. Mattress Firm will find you the right mattress from a wide selection of top brands at every budget. Plus, if you see a lower price somewhere else, they'll match it up to 120 nights with their low price guarantee. Get matched at Mattress Firm's Memorial Day sale and sleep at night. Restrictions apply. See mattressfirm.com or store for details. Support for this podcast comes from the Neubauer Family Foundation, supporting WHYY's Fresh Air and its commitment to sharing ideas and encouraging meaningful conversation. Taylor Swift has dropped a new album. She is the biggest pop star in the world, and everything she does makes news. I gasped. I was like, oh my God, I've been there, and you can identify with it. For a breakdown of Taylor Swift and her new album, The Tortured Poets Department, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. One of the things about the book of Revelation is that there are so many references in pop culture that come out of it. And a lot of us don't even realize that it's from the book of Revelation. Like, I saw the Ingmar Bergman classic film, The Seventh Seal, back in college. I've watched it several times since. It's a remarkable film that has a lot to do with, like, questioning God and a strange, like, religious cult and playing chess with death is a famous scene. I didn't understand that the seventh seal was directly out of the book of Revelation or the grapes of wrath. I didn't know that either or a thief in the night or 
um, the whore of Babylon or the lake of fire or the pearly gates of heaven. Why do you think that, as you said, so few people actually read the book of Revelation because it's so mystifying and complicated um, and a lot of it doesn't make easy to understand sense? Um, Why do you think so many references in pop culture, in songs and movies and books have come out of that book? Yeah, I know. And, it's, you know, it's it's gotten more and more. I mean, especially, I think, since the 19, since 1945, uh, it's become even more of a part of popular culture uh, because people realize that, in fact, we might blow ourselves off the planet. Or now, you know, we think we might, you know, that we might actually destroy the planet. It's a burning, it's a burning world we're in. And, and so people naturally think about end-of-the-world things and it turns their head to, uh, to Revelation. Uh, it's been a very influential book throughout history because uh, in in the Western culture, of course, this is a you know it's a whether a person is a Christian or not, it's been a Christian culture, and Revelation has had very long tentacles. Um, in my book, I talk about here, here's one people wouldn't expect D. H. Lawrence. Um, you know, D. H. Lawrence. I mean, he's he's famous for the for the for the racy novels, but his final book was The Apocalypse. He was very bothered. By the book of Revelation, and he wrote wrote a he wrote a book two weeks before he died. He published it, his last book, and it's about it because he found it so disturbing. And I think a lot of the apocalyptic references you get today from even you know post apocalyptic movies, and just you know you just kind of go down a huge list that most anybody could probably cite. You just it 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 is tied to this apocalyptic vision, and it's not just Revelation. It's because the entire Christian tradition has been, from the very beginning, apocalyptically oriented in the sense that um, the understanding is that God created this world and he's going to destroy this world and we're just waiting for it to happen. Uh, and so you, in the modern times, you imagine scenarios where it could happen. And the scenarios today are very different from what John had in mind, but uh, it's still it's the same basic idea. It started with God. It's going to end in God. It started with paradise. It's going to return to paradise. Uh, humans introduced evil. God's going to destroy evil. And so it's all part of the, the larger arc of the biblical narrative. It's also very colorful, like the language in Revelation is colorful. It's hugely symbolic, and it, it's kind of ironic because the symbols really stand out and make you think that this is a literary genius. Uh, but one of the realities is that it's a very badly written book. <laughs> the, the Greek of the book of Revelation is the worst Greek of the New Testament, and most of the New Testament Greek isn't that great. But you know, he, make, he just makes grammatical mistakes. <laughs> so this, but it's funny because he has all of these images that, as you say, you know, it has these, these, these uh, terms that just become – huge cultural symbols, really, and uh, but it's from somebody who doesn't write very well. So a question you ask at the end of your book is, which Jesus do you model yourself on? The Jesus who was anti-materialistic, who said, turn the other cheek, um, or, or the Jesus who participates in this incredible wrath and retribution, vengeance, violence, bloodshed, plagues, catastrophes, lakes of fire— that's a really interesting question to ponder because is I mean can you reconcile believing in both at the same time and is that a question you asked yourself when, when you were still a believer When I was a believer I um I thought that God was both loving and just 
and that um, that we could experience his love uh, if we would turn to him. But if we didn't, then necessarily he had to implement his justice. So that the book of Revelation was his justice and the gospels were his love. And, uh, you know, I really don't see it that way anymore. I think that um, the book of Revelation is not really about God's justice. Justice is not the word that gets used in Revelation. The, the word is wrath. The book itself claims that it's about the wrath of God and, um, and, and the Lamb and Christ. It, the, a common wor- the common words in Revelation are not words like love or hope or justice, or mercy. The, the words are wrath, vengeance, uh, revenge, blood. Uh, you know, <laughs> so these are, these are the terms, and they're not the terms that you find on the lips of Jesus in the Gospels. Um, Jesus certainly thought that a destruction of the world was going to come, um, but he didn't think that God was going to be torturing people for five months without allowing them to die, as in the book of Revelation. So I, I think it really comes down to a choice. And the frightening thing is I think increasingly in Christianity, especially in American Christianity, people are really more entranced with the violent, vengeful, uh, wrathful Jesus of Revelation, even if they don't read it. That's the side they take rather than the loving, caring, merciful Jesus of the Gospels. How are you seeing that expressed? Uh, well, there's a lot of violence being sponsored by uh, by conservative Christians who are in support of, well, taking over the government, for example, who are in support of all sorts of uh, opposition to uh, social policies that might help people. So opposition to immigration, wanting to cut the budgets so that we don't help out the poor. We cut down on helping uh, helping those who are desperately in need. But let's build up the defense budget. And uh, let's 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 invade some more. Uh, and so I'm, I'll just say, you know, there are some wars that I think are completely justified. I think America has been in wars that are not justified. And most of these unjustified wars, in my experience, have been supported by people who call themselves Christian who want to take over the world uh, in one way or another. Uh, so I think the violent Jesus of Revelation resonates with people more than the uh, the innocent lamb of the uh, of the Gospels. Bart Ehrman, it's really been great to talk with you again. Thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. I always enjoy it. Bart Ehrman's new book is called Armageddon, What the Bible Really Says About the End. After we take a short break, John Powers will review a new rom-com he says marks the arrival of a new wave of black British talent. This is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and gives personalized recommendations based on the homes that you like so you can find the home that's just right for you. You can favorite homes, share listings with others, and even schedule tours with a local Redfin agent all in the app. When you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process, and they know how to help you win the right home at the right price. So download the Redfin app to get started today. Support for NPR and the following message come from Betterment, an automated investing and savings app. CEO Sarah Levy shares why accessibility is central to Betterment's mission. The real innovation for Betterment was taking a set of tools that were used by the ultra-wealthy and making them accessible to the average investor. And that includes tax strategies, that includes dollar-cost averaging. These are all sort of tricks of the trade. Learn more about automated investing technology at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. 
This message is brought to you by NPR sponsor, Progressive Insurance. You call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. Tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options within your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. In the new romantic comedy, Rye Lane, a pair of young Londoners share a special day in South London. The film, which is airing on Hulu, marks the arrival of a new wave of black British talent, both on camera and behind it. Our critic at large, John Power, says he was carried along by Rye Lane's wonderful spirit. For much of the 20th century, romantic comedies were a movie house staple. Serving up such iconic pairings as Catherine Hepburn and Cary Grant, Rock Hudson and Doris Day, Diane Keaton, and the now disfavored Woody Allen. The genre began to lose steam in the 90s, around the time everyone began using the word rom-com, a decidedly unromantic term that only heightens the sense that we're being offered something formulaic. Of course, the best way to escape that perception is by doing something original, finding a fresh spin, retooling the format, or focusing on characters who normally don't get to star in romantic comedies. That's what we get in Rye Lane, a vivid new British film that marks the featured debut of director Rain Allen Miller. Funny and high-spirited, it centers on two young black Londoners who spend a day together while recovering from terrible breakups. Although what happens is far from unpredictable, the film takes you on an enjoyable journey through a south-of-the-Thames London you seldom see on screen. In classic fashion, the movie begins with the collision between opposites where Dom, played by David Johnson, is sweet, courteous, and buttoned up. Yaz, that's Vivian Opara, is a fast-talking young woman whose behavior borders on the kooky. They meet, cutely, of course, when Yaz overhears Dom sobbing over his lost love in an art gallery bathroom. Spotting him back inside the gallery, she chats him up to cheer him up. And soon, rather like Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy in the Before Sunrise trilogy, the two set forth onto the streets talking. Over the course of the next few hours, Yaz and Dom wander through the vibrantly alive South London neighborhoods of Brixton and Peckham, shot in jello colors, often with fisheye lenses. Along the way, they laugh, argue, sing, and in two key scenes, one funny, the other painful, encounter both of their exes. They also swap stories about their lives, with Dom confessing he used to work at KFC, and Yaz saying she hopes to be a movie costume designer. Here, they walk through a Brixton mall, and when Yaz asks Dom what he does now that he's grown up, he makes a voluminously unhip admission. Oh, I'm going to count some. Boring! Okay. No free popcorn chicken, but still, that's like a proper job. <laughs> yeah, it's not particularly glamorous. No. I actually kind of love it. So is that what you've always wanted to do? Or have you got yourself some thwarted ambition burning away in your gut? You know you're very... Peng? Refreshingly disarming. You ask a lot of questions. I'm interested in people's messes. What makes you think I've got a mess? Everyone has a mess. Hi. <laughs> OK. Um... <laughs> you know, I, I think I did always want to be an accountant. Is that... Is that weird? Don't ask me. I wanted to be Prince when I was little. Specifically, Purple Rain Prince. Yeah? Yeah. I made myself a little costume and everything. It's clear that Alan Miller and her writers, Nathan Bryan and Tom Melia, know the tradition they're working in. 
The pairing of staid dom and freewheeling yes harks back to classics like Bringing Up Baby, Breakfast at Tiffany's, and What's Up Doc, in which the heroine's fizz helps enliven the dull hero. The movie nods to newer romantic comedies, too. Yaz and Dom visit a burrito shack named Love Guaxually that's run by none other than Colin Firth, a genre stalwart in everything from Pride and Prejudice to Bridget Jones's Diary. Now, I do wish the filmmakers had learned a bit more from the subtler masters of the genre. While the best romantic comedies draw on deep aquifers of feeling, Rye Lane's script exudes a fear that we might get bored. Deliberately slight at 82 minutes, it offers dialogue that's too relentlessly quippy, and secondary characters who should be richer. Yaz and Dom's exes are made so cartoonishly awful, we can't see why our heroes would ever have dated, much less loved them. You see, we do like Dom and Yaz. Graced with a gentle vibe, Johnson's quietly appealing performance makes him a generous foil for his co-star. And on an eye-catching turn that will surely launch her to bigger things, Opara wows us with her whirling brio. If Dom is the sturdy soul with his feet anchored a bit too firmly on the ground, Yaz is the magic carpet that will carry them both aloft. In the end, Rye Lane pulls off the seductive feat of conjuring a world touched by enchantment. Alan Miller brings out the glamour in less prosperous neighborhoods that, unlike the chicly gentrified bastion of Notting Hill, are often presented as troubled. Her racially mixed South London is a swirl of luscious fruit stalls, good-time karaoke bars, streets bursting with life, eccentricity, and warmth. She makes us want to tag along. John Powers reviewed the new film Rye Lane, which is streaming on Hulu. Tomorrow on Fresh Air, Brooke Shields reflects on how she was sexually objectified as a child and teenager in films like Pretty Baby, in which she played a child prostitute, and Blue Lagoon, and ads for Calvin Klein jeans. The 57-year-old actress is the subject of the new documentary, Pretty Baby. I hope you'll join us. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Simon, Teresa Madden, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Chaloner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. Roberta Shorrock directs the show. I'm Terry Gross. This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, State Farm. If you're a small business owner, it isn't just your business, it's your life. Whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's where State Farm Small Business Insurance comes in. State Farm agents are small business owners, too, and know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Humans are kind of overrated. Over on Shortwave, a science podcast, we're only kind of kidding. We're bringing you the wondrous world of animal science to your daily life. From queer animal love stories to songbird memories, we're showing you how critter knowledge informs human science. Listen now to Shortwave, a podcast from NPR.